0: Download the Instacart app today to get free
1: delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to stay on top of the latest news from China in only a few minutes a day our email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, or at the website at subchina.com. Subchina offers uncensored reporting from and about China, and you can read about everything from media policy to the Me Too movement, from the U.S.-China trade war to China's ongoing draconian repression of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. We are sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I am in Washington, D.C. this week. Joining me from storied Goldcorn Holler in Nashville, Tennessee, is newly minted American citizen Jeremy Goldcorn, editor-in-chief of SubChina. Yay! Uh, and I remind any listeners who may be Chinese intelligence or security chicks that he is now an American, most emphatically not a Canadian, and therefore of little value to you. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I have nothing to say to that Kaiser. Uh, well, well, just, just make sure to pronounce
1: your, 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 your you know, about not my about. R's right,
2: properly. Right, right, right. I know I can't say water and bath anymore okay. and after. I'll have my coffee after the meal. That doesn't work. No, no, no. Uh,
1: Jeremy, as you know, we like on occasion to do a pullback and look at the big picture episode uh, with a relatively fresh voice, somebody who hasn't been on the show before. Uh, I think we found a terrific guest to do just such a show with, uh, someone who has written broadly about China's place in the world, about great power and superpower transition about the powerless state of U.S.-China relations and the consequences should the two countries move still further apart. So joining us on Seneca, as I said for the first time, is Ali Wine, a policy analyst at the nonpartisan not-for-profit Rand Corporation. Cue evil music. No. He works in uh, Rand's defense and political sciences department. Ali, thanks for taking the time and uh, welcome to Seneca. Thank you so much for
2: having me. It's a pleasure. So Ali when you know I think about the Rand Corporation I sort of think about ex military and intelligence uh, dark, shadowy types advising <laughs> the government in hawkish ways to, you know, advising Ronald Reagan to support a proxy Cold War in Angolia and Namibia, you know, where uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of guns went. And one of those guns ended up in Johannesburg, and the barrel of the gun ended up pointed against my mother's head. Oy. And when I think of the RAND Corporation, I sort of think of, like, the worst excesses of the Reagan era. Mm. Am I right? <laughs> Tell me, what is the RAND Corporation?
0: So the well, the RAND Corporation it it came of age, so to speak, during the Cold War, and it was at the RAND Corporation where many of the concepts of deterrence, game theory, uh, many of the formulations that the United States employed to think about how to dissuade a nuclear armed adversary uh, from attacking uh, were developed. Uh, so many uh, many game theorists, many defense. Uh, defense analysts really—they made their name at RAND. So I would say that RAND, the to the extent that it has that that somewhat shadowy reputation, uh, it's it is probably because it came of age during the. The Cold War, but as it was, you know Bob McNamara and and
1: Doctor Strangelove, I believe Doctor Strangelove. Yeah, that's, that's he was working there, I believe. The
0: association that people have. but <laughs> I would say that the, yeah, the Rand Corporation is, um, I would say it's it's a research organization that is looking to um, advance public policy solutions. And something that was surprising to me, um, so when I I suspect that Rand is probably a little bit better known for its work on national security and foreign policy issues, but a very sizable segment of the work uh, is devoted to uh, domestic issues. And so if you go to Rand now, uh, you're as likely to encounter somebody who is working on issues of, say, counterterrorism or counterinsurgency as you are to encounter somebody who is working on strategies for mitigating the opioid epidemic or hmm. strategies for improving uh, health care access in the United States. So, so RAND is its based in Santa Monica. I work out of the D.C. office, but it is a research organization that is aiming to advance public policy solutions. Well, great. Uh, you know, these days you hear
1: a great deal of talk about how we've entered a, a new Cold War with China. Uh, recently, though, you actually initiated and then kicked off a Chinafile conversation. Chinafile uh, runs these terrific conversations where they invite a lot of people to write short sort of responses to a question. And this one was basically, are we in a new Cold War with China? I think what was maybe surprising to me was that all of the the participants in that concluded that, no, we're not. Uh, you certainly emphatically said that we aren't. Uh, can you can you walk us through your arguments and maybe some of the other arguments in that conversation that you found to be especially compelling uh, for why this does not, at least not yet, amount to a full-fledged Cold War?
0: Sure. So, so let me begin by actually thanking uh, Susan Jakes and, and Isaac Stonefish for for giving me the opportunity to convene this this roundtable uh, for China File. It was a, it was a fascinating discussion. The the core of my argument, and then I'll, I'll I'll touch on some strands that that appeared in in the rest of the conversation. The the core of my argument is that the United States and China are certainly engaged in a long term competition. It is an increasingly multifaceted competition, and it's one that, while it is centered around economics and technology, is beginning to now broach increasingly ideological domains, military domains. The reason, though, or I should say reasons, there are a few reasons why I uh, there are a few reasons why I am uh, I'm somewhat skeptical of the analogy. Um, the first is leaving aside the, the the merits or the demerits of the analogy itself, I think that we need to use policymakers and observers need to be very cautious when employing analogies. Um, analogies, they can illuminate, but if they are misapplied, they can actually obfuscate and lead you prescriptively in in misguided directions. But sure. in terms of in terms of concrete arguments, uh, the first the United States and the Soviet Union had very little in the way of economic Interdependence or exchange. They had very little in the way of cultural exchange, very little in the way of people to people exchange. When you look at the United States and China today, uh, the United States and China, you know, last year they did well over $600 billion in trade. They are bound together by a very dense, complicated network of supply chains around the world. Um, so economically, they have a very high degree of interdependence. Um, China accounts for approximately one-third of the international students who are enrolled at American colleges and universities. On the only, flip, a <laughs> only, only a third. Only a third, only a third. And on the flip side, uh, the United States is now standing up more and more programs that are enabling uh, young American leaders uh, and future leaders to study in China. And I think the, the most notable of these programs being the Schwartzman Scholars Program uh, that sends, uh, sends a number of students from uh, the United States, Europe, and then also China. They do a one-year master's degree at Tsinghua University. So when you look at the economic exchanges, you look at the people-to-people exchanges, uh, the tourism, the cultural exchanges. Um, these are not two countries that are divorced from one another. Uh, they are interdependent in, in a variety of respects. So that's that was one that was one element that i tried to introduce in in my response um, i would another element that i i introduce in my response is that during the cold war washington and moscow they presided over ideologically aligned satellites and this notion that you could the, no- the notion that you could profit from economically and or otherwise, the notion that you could profit from competition between the United States and the Soviet Union didn't really exist. Uh, you were either part of the United States camp or you were part of the Soviet camp or you or in the case of, say, India, you were you were proudly and, and self-declared non-aligned. Right. And there was a very obviously a very uh, vibrant non-aligned movement today, though. If you look at middle countries, and I realize that that term might have a pejorative connotation, but basically countries outside of the United States and China, you get the sense that countries don't want to be don't, they don't want to face pressure to have to choose either the United States or China. Um, and even those countries, and I think it's important to note this, even those countries that are perhaps the wariest of China's strategic ambitions uh, in, in China's immediate backyard, you look at Japan, you look at India, you look at South Korea. They want to strengthen their diplomatic and military ties with the United States, which they are doing, but they don't want to be excluded from uh, the the fruits of China's economic resurgence. So they want to strengthen their their trade ties with China. They want to strengthen their investment linkages with China. And so what we see going on right now in the Asia-Pacific, but also I would say globally, is countries saying... We want to strengthen certain uh, relationships with the United States or certain types of relationships. We want to strengthen certain types of relationships with China. And we don't want the United States or China to come to us and say, you must
2: choose. Right.
0: So that's that's another.
2: So, uh, that, fair enough, Ali. I think you've, you've laid out a good case. But if it's not a new Cold War, can I ask you two questions? Sure. Firstly, if it's not a new Cold War, what is it? What do we call this moment when so many people across the American political spectrum are calling for some kind of rethink uh of of engagement and the second question is um you must be aware of this hoover study that Orville shell and a number of prominent academics former diplomats and policy analysts put together in which they list the many grievances the united states has with china focusing on what some call influence operations they call for a policy of constructive vigilance what did you make of their findings and this concept of constructive vigilance so
0: to the to the first question, um, I would say, and actually Kaiser and I were talking about this just before the the program. It it may seem like I'm evading the question or or copping out, but I do think that this period is sui generis. Um, I'm actually I'm I'm currently right now working on a piece that that tries to that that tries to survey some of the analogies that have been made to uh, or some of the analogies that observers have invoked to try to explain U.S. China competition. And two two of them come up a lot. So one of them was the analogy that I discussed in the. Uh, the China file conversation about a new Cold War, so obviously sure. hearkening back to the Cold War, and the other is the 1930s. We see, we see a resurgence of authoritarianism. We see a resurgence of strongman rule. We see challenges to democracy, and, and so on and so forth. So I talked a little bit about why I thought that the the Cold War analogy was inept uh, in in certain respects. But but let me talk a little bit about why I think that it's also mis, misguided to argue that we're simply reprising the 1930s. As I was telling Kaiser earlier. I mean, in the 1930s, number one, there was no post-war order of which to speak. So now we talk about, in in, in present day, we talk about challenges to the post-war order, the erosion of the post-war order, and increasingly about the erosion of the post-war order from within, not just without. But in the 1930s, there was no order uh, of which to speak. Uh, the world was deglobalizing. There was no order. So that, that's a fundamental difference between now and the 1930s. Um, in the 1930s as well, the, resurgent or the rising or resurgent authoritarian countries were also militaristically aggressive. Whereas we see today, there's far less in the way of, there is some, but there's far less in the way of territorial aggression. Uh, there's far less in the way of outright uh, military assaults on a post-war order. By China. By, yeah, by China. Uh, by China and so you know some people might make the, the point well what about what about China's consolidation of influence in or a control in the South China Sea? But there's a difference between there's a difference between piecemeal incremental control of features and construction of artificial features in a body of water, now, albeit a very important body of water versus, territorial the Anschluss or the Sudetenland, right, right? Conquest and aggression. Um, and, and and one last point that I would make, explaining why I think that the 1930s analogy is somewhat uh, misplaced, is that in the 1930s there were very few there were very few electoral democracies, and in the 1930s we're experiencing the Great Depression and authoritarian ideologies, whether it was. Communism, socialism, all the the isms that you can iterate, uh, they really, uh, they had. Now, it, it proved to be it proved to be mistaken, but they offered a coherent explanation of political order. They offered a coherent explanation of economic order, and democracies were faltering at the time. Now they're far more electoral democracies. They're being challenged, certainly, not only from without but from within. <laughs> uh, okay,
2: Ali. Once again, I think you've made a pretty good case. Yeah. Uh, it's not a cold war. It's not the thirties. Um, is there a word to describe it?
0: I, it's, sweet generous. So, well, it's, and I know sweet generous is an evasion and I, and I, I apologize because I, I, I mean, I've been searching in vain. I mean, I really have Let's been Let's come trying, up with one right now. I've you. been trying very what about, hard. Yeah, 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 right.
2: No, I was going to say, I've been, I've been trying very I, hard. I mean, things. you know, I think the decoupling, the, the freeze, the small ice age, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> uh, let, let me get back to the second question sure. I wanted to ask sure. you. What did you think of this Hoover study? Um, that called for a policy of constructive vigilance. Sure. So a few reactions. My,
0: so the, first, the first reaction I had, and I, I think it's important not only for... I think it's especially important for, uh, for uh, Chinese interlocutors, is um, the individuals who authored the report um, are some of the most respected... Uh, China observers in uh, in the United States. And I would say around the world, you look at Orville Shell, you look at Elizabeth Economy. And these are these are scholars who um, who are, and I shouldn't say that they were, they are proponents of engaging with China. They are uh, these are not what you would call China Hawks. Uh, well, so, some of them are. Some of them some of them are perhaps a little bit more towards that. John side, Pomfret
1: but, is a hawk. I mean, there's really no two ways about it. But uh, if you look... Mishin if you look, is a hawk.
0: Many of them aren't, though, Kaiser. That's I true. Mean, no, uh, is not a hawk. Oh, absolutely not. Look, He's absolutely not a hawk. Is, is, is a good example. So I, I think that the first... So my first reaction when I saw the report was that this... It really, for me, is yet another sort of data point indicating um, how significantly... Uh, American, I wouldn't say American public opinion, American public opinion is still somewhat mixed on, I, I think, what to make of China's resurgence, but how significantly American elite opinion across parts and lines has shifted. And again, um, when you have very respected, you know, moderate observers who are authoring this type of report, you need to pay attention. Um, I did think it was interesting, though, and Kaiser and I were talking about this earlier, uh, the dissent that Susan Shirk penned uh, near the end of the report. Um, I think that the, I think that the report uh, in terms of calling for constructive vigilance, I don't know many people who would oppose constructive vigilance. I think that the concern would be, and, and Susan Shirk points this out in her dissent, is if you don't sufficiently distinguish between what you might call legitimate le- legitimate and illegitimate information That's what she activities. calls them specifically, yeah. And so I do think it's important to distinguish between the two. Um, I do think that it's important that we that we not... Uh, conflate the two, and that we are very precise in demarcating uh, between legitimate and illegitimate activities, um, because otherwise we do go down. Or there's a potential to go down the road in which any kind of Chinese activity is deemed nefarious, and and there's and on the flip side, there's also a risk um, from the Chinese side that they perceive any American action to be nefarious, and what's very important or one of the one of the very uh, crucial elements i would say going forward between the united states and china is can they accept that there are certain actions that countries take to advance their national interests that are not immediately and intrinsically inimical to the other right not every us action is taken with china in mind not every chinese action is taken with america in mind and so so i so when i read the report i think that the imprimatur of the authors matters and it's very uh, it's it's Powerful. It's powerful that many of the most respected uh, China watchers uh, authored that report. Um, I don't think that there are many people who would dissent from the proposition that we need to be vigilant, like any country, like any other country should be. But I do agree with Susan Shirk near the end that we need to be careful not to confuse legitimate versus illegitimate activities, and that we should be more precise in, in categorizing them.
1: Yeah, I think you're. Yeah, you're, you're. You're expressing, I think, a view that I I would wholeheartedly share. Now, uh, we on the subject of analogies, you looked at the Cold War, you're looking at, at, at Germany or the continent in the 30s. There's another analogy that people, I think, maybe a more apt one, really, which is the the turn of the century, of the last century, or the, the two centuries ago, whatever it was. <laughs> Uh, really, what well, we're talking about, the rise of Bismarcky in Germany. Uh, we're talking... I mean, I, you work pretty closely with Graham Allison, and I'm sure this was... I haven't actually read his his book, Destined for War. We'll mm-hmm. talk about that later. Sure. But sure. I'm quite confident that that was one of the ones that he brought up as a classic case of a Thucydides trap, mm-hmm. right? Uh, where, you know, you, you you had Germany at the time in the role that China now occupies, and, and the UK, uh, and maybe to a lesser extent, some of its allies in the West... Uh, in in the American role, uh, what about that analogy? Do you do you have any thoughts
0: on on whether that is at all apt? So it again, I would say that there are mer- there are, there are merits and there are also limitations. And actually, Professor Allison, he had I think prior to publishing uh, the book, he published an essay um, in the Atlantic, which I would I would really commend to um, to everyone who's listening, in which he identifies uh, seven seven mer- what he believes to be seven merits of the analogy, and then seven limitations of. Of that analogy, specific analogy. Oh, okay. of that specific analogy. And so, I would say though that I I tend to um, I tend to think a little bit more about the differences, and it it, it perhaps it, it's a, a sort of an inbuilt or sort of intrinsic suspicion of analogy. So I yeah, think that my bias I, I is always it. a little bit towards uh, uh, critiquing the analogies. But there are a few um, a few important differences. I would say that again, Germany was, uh, and, and China has learned from the German example, uh, and they often. China, I think about a, a decade ago, they screened a, the leadership, screened a documentary that was about the rise and fall of the great powers. I think it was maybe a 12 part series that, right. uh, that, that was aired, I think, in 2006. I could be wrong about the date. But they were analyzing basically the mistakes that, that, uh, that past uh, great powers have made. And they noted in the case of the Germans that the Germans, militaristically and ideologically, were posing a frontal assault. Right. Uh, on on the prevailing system, it wasn't piecemeal, it wasn't selective. it was it was a very frontal assault, and in many cases, it was reckless. yeah, they were neither hiding nor biting. they were they were neither hiding nor biting, right exactly. So one, I think that the nature of the German challenge was far more uh, was far more visceral, I think it was far more imminent. um and I would also say another crucial difference is that Britain was you could say almost that Britain was kind of blindsided by by how quickly Germany rose under Bismarck. And so if you look at, if you just look, and actually there's a a great book that Aaron Friedberg did in which he looks at just, he concentrates on the period between 1895 and 1905. If you look just in that decade at how dramatically uh, the the naval gap between Britain and Germany shrank, you looked at how rapidly Germany's aggregate national power rose in a decade, those those dynamics really caught Britain off guard, and so Britain, in responding to an ascendant Germany, it was caught off guard by how rapidly Germany grew across so many dimensions. And I don't think it had the chance to to, to formulate. It didn't have the chance to 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 think as much or reflect as much. the The difference with the United States and China is, um, yes, China has uh, has risen, or I should say, it has resurgent that's not a word but it is it it, it has recovered uh, far more rapidly uh, I mean China has accumulated more power in in less, in, time. In less time than any other country but given that still the gap in overall power between China and the United States is still quite large. Sure, sure. The United States has far more time to formulate a proper response. It has a far more time to get the balance right between competitive dynamics and cooperative dynamics. Britain but but didn't it have seems that like luxury. I mean
1: what they're doing right now is the equivalent technologically of the London Naval Conference. It's it's this sort of transparent effort. Okay, you know, you're going to limit what you're your tech companies are going to contribute to these important networks. And we're going to just impose limits just the way that we did with the Germans and how many ships of what class they can build. Uh, I mean, it, I don't know where I'm going with that, but <laughs>
0: no, there, but it's, you know, you're right. I mean, I would say what I worry about with, and, and perhaps we can, we can get into this later. What I worry about with the, this 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 notion, or that this perhaps hope or, or conviction that we can um, we can hobble China's technological progression. I certainly think that we can introduce headaches. I think that we can I think that we can slow down the rate of China's uh, technological progress, and I think we may be able to cr- create some headaches for the Chinese in the short term, but. Because right now, the China they still have they still have. If you look at their existing level of dependence on the United States for high tech inputs, they still rely inordinately on sure ZTE was a clear example of that. ZTE, um, you know Huawei. You look at a number of the the technology companies. So I think that in the short term, if the United States were to say we are no longer going to to ship high tech inputs to the Huawei's or to the ZTEs, it could create you can't replace those types of suppliers overnight. What I worry about, though, from a U.S. perspective is that even if we create some short-term headaches for China as they try to find alternative suppliers for high-tech inputs, 10 years down the road, 15 or 20 years down the road, you're going to have a Chinese economy that in the aggregate is far larger. You're going to have an indigenous innovation apparatus that is far more sophisticated. And it's quite likely that China, even if they weren't able to fully compensate for U.S. uh, high-tech inputs, will have substantially compensated. And so we will then be in a position in which China is both... At the aggregate level, it's much larger, but it's also far more economically dynamic and independent.
2: Okay, so that is kind of a consequence of a possible decoupling. Um, And you've written quite a lot about the economic consequences of the decoupling that has been talked about so much. And I do think this is something that needs to be thought about more by the people who are pushing a harder line. Um, Can you talk about what decoupling would entail and the damage and increasingly strained relationship between China and the US what the effects of that might be sure well i so the the good news let me begin as a as a congenital optimist let me
0: begin with, with the good news story i mean the good news, the good news is that's, the, the good we don't news, have a lot of good
2: news recently on we don't the show, have a lot of so good news good. these <laughs> days so i'll
0: i'll i'll try to introduce a little bit of uh, levity into the the discussion um, genuine decoupling in a sense that the united states and china the United States and China essentially had economic interactions comparable to those between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. That type of decoupling would be very difficult to achieve, Uh, leaving aside the rhetoric from the United States, leaving aside the rhetoric from China. I mean, the United States and China, again, it's important to remember, they are bound together not only by hundreds of billions of dollars worth of trade, but by very, very complicated global supply chains. And so if decoupling were to occur, uh, it certainly is not a fait accompli, but if it were to occur, it would occur over the medium to long run. It would take, a, I think, a, a substantial period of time. Uh, and I, I am still optimistic. Um, I would actually, I would, I would commend to your, um, to your listeners, uh, an article that Abigail Grace, she's with the Center for New American Security. She wrote an article for the Atlantic not too long ago, in which she said that she was, she was commenting on the possibility of decoupling, and she said maybe the alternative. She said. Perhaps the United States and China regard today's type of interdependence as unacceptable. Decoupling is is sort of at the other extreme. Maybe the United States and China can find a way to restructure their interdependence. Um, so decoupling is not a fait accompli, but what I tried to argue in the, I, I believe, the piece you're referencing, um, what I worry about is that trade interdependence has been one of the few phenomena that has, has introduced some stability Ballast, in the yeah. It's been a ballast. Um, It's it's been one of the few uh, sources of stability in a relationship between two countries that organically have very little, if anything, in common. And if anything, actually, uh, the only, uh, I would say probably one of the few similarities between the United States and China, which actually goes to actually just sort of amplify their differences is they are each convinced of their exceptionalism. The United States is convinced of its exceptionalism. China is convinced of its exceptionalism. Um, But these are two countries that organically have very little in common. And so trade interdependence, it's, it's a contrivance to bring the two countries together, but I think it served a useful purpose. What I worry about is if... 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, the United States and China act on this rhetoric, begin to unwind and reconfigure supply chains, begin to wean themselves off of each other's economies, what then becomes the substitute ballast? What other dynamic or what other force, uh, absent commercial interdependence, Serves to stabilize a relationship. Well, well it
1: in, is mutual assured destruction in the Cold War again, right? Well,
0: sure, and but, but even there, the difference is, um, you know, with the United States and the Soviet Union, you know, the Soviets and the United States, they had tens of thousands of nuclear weapons trained at one another, and and they they actively contemplated the they actively contemplated the uh, a possibility of a nuclear exchange in which hundreds of millions of people could die. Um, the United States and China aren't engaged. In they aren't engaged in a comparable calculus. I mean, there are obviously security concerns. There's what if China were to what if China were to make a, a move on Taiwan? A move on Taiwan. What if China were to declare another air defense identification zone? Um, what if the United States were to get wrapped into a maritime skirmish between China and, and one of its fellow disputants in the South China Sea? But it isn't that same type of calculus. Um, but I saw so I I. I don't worry, I wouldn't rule out the possibility of a a military confrontation. Um, I'm not so much worried about a military confrontation, though you can't rule it out, as I am by just a period of uncertainty, of protracted uncertainty in the relationship in which there isn't a ballast like commercial interdependence to stabilize their ties.
1: Hmm. Uh, Ali, some of your colleagues at Rand recently published a paper called China and the International Order, Uh, which challenges the now widespread belief that China is hell-bent on upending the existing international order, uh, on usurping really the leading role that the U.S. has held for the last, what, 70 plus years, and creating essentially a Sinocentric world. Uh, They conclude that China's behavior hasn't been all that disruptive, and that instead China has been what they describe as a conditional supporter of the existing order, and that all China really wants is, you know, more voice in that order, a uh, seat at the table, you know. Uh, this this makes a lot of sense to me. I thought that paper was excellent, um, not just descriptively, but also maybe prescriptively. Uh, what did you make of their findings? Uh, of course, you know, they're your colleagues, so obviously you're not going to disagree strongly, but I don't think that you do. And, and do you think that China can or ought to be accommodated, uh, or do you think that maybe— this prickly attitude that China has displayed recently, uh, so conspicuously, uh, with this daily accretion of strains on the relationship, that this may be too late.
0: Well, it, as you said, I'm <laughs> I have a bias; as they, are, they are my <laughs> colleagues, but I, I found I did find the report to be excellent, and and again would commend it to all of you know, the listeners. So there were three authors: uh, Michael Mazar, Timothy Heath, uh, and Astrid Sevalos uh, or Sevalos. They uh, wrote this report, and what i like about the report is that it portrays china as a it is selectively revisionist uh, it is it is challenging it is challenging certain aspects of the post war order it is perhaps somewhat indifferent to other aspects of the order and it is challenging others but it's so again it's sort of a three part approach so it challenging some elements indifference to certain elements uh, preserving certain elements and then outside of the post war order this is actually maybe element number 4 outside of the post war order Setting up certain institutions of its own. Uh, if you look at, for example, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, you think about the inauguration of the Belt and Road Initiative. So my my sense is that China is trying to is trying concurrently to grow its voice within the order, but also as kind of a hedge, cultivate institutions and cultivate a voice that that don't depend on on that order. Now that type of selective revisionism is challenging, and I don't want I don't want to in any way play it down. Right? Play it down. And and the relationship is going—it is getting more tense, and it is going to get—I think it will continue to get more tense. Um, Although I would say uh, I am not yet persuaded—I'm not yet persuaded of the proposition that China, if it were given the opportunity, um, would be thrilled to supplant the United States in its current capacity as the underwriter of uh, the post-war order. And many Chinese scholars make this point. They say that, yes, China wants to continue to grow— but given given the current deceleration in china's growth given a very grim demographic outlook given the wrenching difficulties of restructuring the economy if china were to assume responsibility for underpinning a post war order that would be perhaps an intolerable strain
1: on it's on the chinese it's simply not side. up for it i mean it's just not up to it but.
0: i don't get the sense I mean, if you look at if you look at well first of all it's not clear to me what a sinocentric Order would what would the contours be? Um, it's oh, not. Don't you
1: know that it would just simply be a resuscitation of the old Qing tribute system, wouldn't it? Well, it's interesting. <laughs> um, so
0: when it's interesting now, when you engage with Chinese interlocutors, something that I th- I do think is important. We you know we've been talking, uh, we've been talking about some of the perhaps the missteps or some of the some of the missteps of the the United States and its its dealings with China. But I do think it's important for China to appreciate that it is not going to be able to resume some kind of sinocentric tributary-like system in the Asia-Pacific. China is now contending with very formidable economies in its backyard, formidable military powers. Um, So it confronts a very different regional neighborhood. It depends far more on the global economy uh, than it used to. It's far more dependent. And I should say that China recognizes that outside of the United States, China's probably been the principal or certainly one of the principal beneficiaries of integrating itself into this That's post-war right. Right. system. So it's it's been a principal beneficiary. Um, I think that it's not clear to me what a Sinocentric international order would look like. It's also not clear to me that China would want to undertake that responsibility, not only because of the, the economic strains that it would impose, but also... Um, it's interesting, and it's it's a bit—forgive uh, me, it's a bit difficult to uh, to explain, so I probably will be a bit incoherent here. But China, in a way, benefits from having the United States as a foil. So long as the United States is seen as the underwriter of the international system— It takes all the lightning. I mean, it, it, it sucks, exactly. sucks up all the punches. Right? So when there are—when financial contagion spreads throughout the system, it's America's fault. If there is a grave humanitarian crisis, America, why aren't you responding? the more that china the more that china narrows the gap of the united states in terms of its overall power the more that other countries will say okay china congratulations you are now a near peer a potential peer of the united states what is your vision what are you going so one what is your vision two how do you propose to deal with global challenges in a way that's differently than the united states and um, china's internal record is going to come under greater scrutiny and i think that china has been thrown off guard by the amount of criticism and the amount of attention that it's, tr- that its treatment of the Uyghur population has received. Uh,
2: Which uh, is a good point to ask you uh, a question I um, wanted. Uh, Stephen Lee Meyer and Chris Buckley of the New York Times recently published a piece titled, An Emboldened China No Longer Cares What Its Critics Think. Uh, And as advertised, it's about the increasingly cavalier attitude that the Communist Party of China has adopted in just the last few years. We've seen it a lot recently, the arrest of two Canadians for supposedly endangering state security, but we all know those are trumped-up charges, and it's just a retaliation for the arrest of Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou. Another example is Beijing's uncompromising stance on the concentration camps for Uyghurs in Xinjiang the detention in, you know, very murky circumstances of the head of Interpol, and many more things. Um, A few years ago, you know, shortly after Xi Jinping uh, came to power, Kaiser started calling it the new truculence, (laughs) which was a word we used on the show for many years, but it it doesn't seem right anymore because it's no longer new. It's more like (laughs) China has gone full honey badger and just doesn't give a fuck what the West thinks. Do you see this... uh, how do you see this? I mean, is it partly a reaction to Trump? Is it an expression of Xi Jinping's personal manly style? Is it a trend that was already well underway before Trump and Xi, or what?
0: It's a combination of all of the above. And, and Kaiser and I were, were talking about this, this very question earlier. So I, I think part of what we are seeing is certainly Xi Jinping's personality. I mean, if you compare Xi Jinping and Hu Jintao, I mean, these are two very different two very different personalities. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, Xi Jinping, He, you know, in his speeches, he says, I mean, even if you look at the speech that he gave recently, you know, commemorating 40 years of reform and opening up, he says, we will not be dictated to. He frequently talks about how China will never again revisit its century of humiliation. He wants to move China closer to the center stage of world affairs, so on and so forth. So Xi Jinping's personality is certainly important. Uh, part of what we are seeing is a reaction to U.S. policy. And what we I think actually there are many Chinese commentators who argue many Chinese commentators who argue that the Trump administration and again we we can agree or disagree with this judgment but there are many Chinese observers who argue that they actually in in a in a way they praise the Trump administration for just being candid they said look the Obama administration wanted to constrict China's resurgence so did the Bush administration but they. They trotted out certain platitudes, whether it was you know, a new model of great power relations, a responsible stakeholder. The Trump administration is simply being candid in expressing its view that China is a national security threat and that the United States intends to constrict its resurgence. So part of the response might be to just the, the candor of, of U.S. policy towards China under the Trump administration. But I do think that there are more secular, longstanding trends. Mm. And I, I think it would be mistaken to, uh, if you if you look at the attitude that, that that's described in this New York Times article, I think it would be mistaken to say that this attitude is simply a product of uh, President Trump's ascendance or simply a product of Xi Jinping's foray um, into Chinese leadership. Um, I would actually perhaps even go back a decade uh, go back to the financial crisis. Um, Kaiser and I were talking earlier. I, so I started college in 2004. When I started college in 2004, China was referred to, most observers call, would refer to it as one of the bricks. It's, it's growing, but we'll, we'll lump it in with, with the other emerging powers. Uh, there were books and articles about Chindia, so how China and India are this <laughs> the new economic front. By the time I graduated, though, that conversation had begun to shift. Um, Observers were now talking about China not as a superpower in its own right, but as an emerging power in a distinct category. And I think that China looked at the financial crisis as a sign of systemic American weakness. They looked at the finance, and I think that in some ways they actually— That's
2: for sure. That that that, that I think, uh, you know, we've discussed on the show many times. Yeah, That absolutely. was a, an inflection point.
0: I think the—so two- I think the 2008 was an inflection point. I think that um, in the early sort of 2010s, as China began observing the, the toll that intensifying political polarization was taking on the
2: American body politic— the toll that it but was but Ali taking. I guess sorry to no you're, but, fine. Um, you're fine I think my question actually is uh, I think Kaizen and I absolutely agree that it really started with the financial crisis when for the first time Chinese technocrats who had always admired their American counterparts realized that the masters of the universe sometimes don't know what the hell they're doing. (laughs) That was the new truculence, which I would say lasted from 2009 until maybe a year or two ago. The full fuck you honey badger mode that we're seeing now, though, this is something a little different. It is. Or at least it's a difference of degree.
0: It is a difference of degree. And I I actually worry worry about the potential for hubris. uh, And... I think that the article is accurate in in, in its assessment that the Chinese you know, the Chinese leadership doesn't appear to be as concerned with international sentiment. But China again, China depends on its Belt and Road Initiative, depends on globalization, depends on the goodwill of countries that are receiving its investments. Um, China's continued resurgence depends on uh, depends on fostering some amount of goodwill. Uh, with with others, and actually, increasingly, it's still a minority view, but there are more and more Chinese international relations scholars who are st- who are now urging China to reconsider its historical aversion to alliance formation. Mm. Um, you look at Yan Shu Tong, who yeah, has a yeah, book yeah, forthcoming yeah, yeah, in sure. April, uh, th- this coming April, and he says if China wants to uh, displace the United States, or if China ha- even w- is going to have a hope of displacing the United States as the world's preeminent power. It will have to form alliances. So he so uh, Professor Yan, he writes an op-ed in The New York Times in 2011 called How China Can Defeat America. And his conclusion is he says, and I'm paraphrasing him roughly, but he says the core of competition between the United States and China will come down to who has more high quality friends. That was his conclusion in 2011. He's doubled down on it since. And so, wow! <laughs> under those
2: terms, uh, China is a long, long, long way behind. And
0: That's this right. is why, and this is why I am somewhat skeptical of. Um, I'm a bit skeptical of the notion that we are going to witness a discrete clean power transition between the United States and China, because we gauge power, or we should gauge power and influence, not only on the basis of aggregate metrics, but if power is more complicated, influence is more complicated, and if China, even if China ascends to the position, the the commanding heights of the global economy. It ascends to the commanding heights of frontier technologies. A China that is bereft of alliances, a China whose internal human rights record is viewed almost universally with suspicion and in many cases disdain, I have a difficult time seeing how that China would... Would lead an international system.
1: Yeah, you know, I I push back for another reason on this 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 idea, and that's this widespread assumption of American decline. I, I just don't think that American leadership is necessarily on the wane. I feel like this is an overreaction to what I think I regard as an aberrant American administration. Uh, this is a maybe a short-term crisis. Sure, there are there are a lot of fundamental issues, but this is not the end. I, I can really easily still imagine a post-Trump future in which you know, we do recommit to our values and to our institutions. We recommit, importantly, to our allies, which I know we have many more high-quality allies than China's possible Pakistan and North Korea. Right? <laughs> uh, I mean, look, we rediscover a, a confidence in the ability of our our security and, and intelligence agencies actually do their jobs without whipping up the American public into this crazy fervor. Uh, we don't need to do this. And we can take a posture toward China that is not capitulationist, that isn't appeasement, uh, that, that actually does step up and uh, competes and falls, you know, well short of this, of treating China as the sort of adversary, but, you know, sees it as a, a, a competitor and competes with it effectively, I think. Uh, I don't think that ship has sailed, do you? I mean?
0: No, I, I don't think it has. I think your assessment is absolutely right. I, th- the caveat that I would introduce is that uh, I do think that Donald Trump's election has injected into the minds of our partners and allies. I do think it has injected a certain degree of uncertainty. Uh, when Donald Trump's presidency was a hypothetical to be considered and not a reality to be managed, I think our partners and allies could say, well, perhaps the U.S. body politic is simply having a little bit more of a vigorous and expansive foreign policy discussion than it normally has. But I think most most observers thought that Hillary Clinton would win in 2016. And so Donald Trump's election now suggests to many of our partners and allies that there is a... There
2: is a the American concern. people are totally f***ing crazy, Well, that. There, <laughs> well, a word. there, is, that there is a
0: there is a constituency. Uh, there is a constituency within the American body politic that is supportive of an America first policy, that is skeptical of uh, sort of a more activist foreign policy, uh, and it's a sizable constituency. Maybe not the majority, but it's a sizable one. And so the, the concern that I have is that even if in 2020 or in 2024... We elect a president, Republican or Democrat, who hews to a more traditional course of U.S. foreign policy. That cloud of uncertainty will always linger over our allies and partners, who will say, "Well, we're glad." Paris, that-
1: the Iran deal, things like this.
0: Right, and they'll or, say, or even, "Yeah, we're glad that you." Revert- Article five. <laughs> Article five. They'll say, "We're glad that you reverted back, reverted back to a traditional conception of U.S. foreign policy." But given that you elected Donald Trump you could presumably elect somebody who has his foreign policy views. You could elect somebody like that in the future. So one is... Alex the, Jones. Well, the, the, <laughs> potentially, potentially. So the, so one is the degree of uncertainty. But um, but to your point and, and to Kaiser's point, um, it is true, and I think it's important to, in terms of how we think about China, um, the track record of declinism when it comes to America's role in world affairs, it, it's, it's not a good track record. Um, we, in the 1930s, uh, Declinists worried about how we would respond to Japan, how we would respond to Germany uh, during the Cold War. Obviously, how would we respond to the Soviet Union in the 1980s? We were concerned that Japan would would outstrip the United States economically, and and none of those declinist predictions proved to be accurate. Now, the the fact that previous declinist predictions haven't panned out has no has no bearing on whether the current declinist predictions will will bear out. And again, I think that China in many ways is a, is a sweet, generous case. Uh, there was an interesting op-ed, actually, or not an op-ed, but an interesting article that Gideon Rackman wrote for Foreign Policy magazine, uh, I think it was in 2011. Yeah. And he says in this article, he says, um, he says it's tempting to say that this is, again, a case of the boy crying wolf. We, we were worried about the Japanese, we were worried about the Soviets, you know, China is just is sort of the, the latest in this iteration. Gideon Rackman makes an interesting point, though, in that piece. He says many people who invoke that parable forget that at the end of the parable, the wolf actually arrives. <laughs> and in Gideon Rackman's supposition, China is, is a wolf. So we, we do need to acknowledge that possibility that, you know, no power, you know, no power uh, is, is guaranteed preeminence forever, and we need to think about each, each challenger differently. Um, but I would say that my thinking about—so I mean, t- so two more thoughts, and then I, I, I'll stop— one is that America does have many uh, important uh, enduring sources of strength and com- uh, competitive advantage. Um, it has a demographic outlook that in, in large part due to immigration is far more favorable than that of any other great power, whereas China's demographic outlook is quite grim uh, because of energy developments uh, in I was, uh, roughly the past decade uh the prospect of not energy independence, but the prospect of being relatively more energy independent is is now within reach. It frees up a lot of foreign policy options for us as well. It frees up a lot of foreign policy options. Um, you look at our ecosystem of innovation. You look at our system of higher education, so on and so forth. So we have a number of inbuilt competitive advantages that have endured and have survived many of these declines prognostications. Um, the second point, and then and, and then I'll stop, is... I actually don't think the declinism, the sentiment, even if it's analytically misguided, I don't think the declinism in and of itself is bad. And I actually think that depending on how it's harnessed, it can be constructive. And so uh, we, were, we were talking earlier, I was, I was mentioning to, to Kaiser earlier, uh, an essay that Samuel Huntington wrote almost exactly 30 years ago.
1: The one about Japan.
0: Well, exactly. So he writes an essay in Foreign Affairs. It's at the end of 1988, and the title is called The U.S., colon, decline or renewal, question mark. And Sam Huntington argues in the piece that here we go again with declinism, this time vis-a-vis Japan. And he spends the bulk of his essay explaining why, in his judgment, the United States is not in decline economically, militarily, politically. But he has a very interesting passage near the end of that essay, which I think merits discussion now and I think is very fitting in how we think about competing with China. He says... While I, while I, Sam Huntington, don't think that the United States is in decline, I also recognize that declinists play the most central role in preventing the outcome that they fear because it is the declinists who sound the alarm and they galvanize the American public and the American foreign policy apparatus to take constructive steps at home and abroad to avert the outcome, to preempt the outcome of decline.
1: Hypochondriacs are healthy because they go to the doctor. Exactly,
0: exactly. And so, so Sam Huntington makes the argument, look, I think that I believe that analytically The fear of decline is misplaced. But if you want to believe that America is in decline and use that sentiment constructively, be my guest. I'm going to call this Randian dialectics. (laughs) (laughs) I worry about, here's what I worry about though, Jeremy, in the case of China. What I worry about in the case of China is we are seeing growing anxiety about a resurgent China There are two ways, and it's a simplistic binary, but you can either harness that anxiety constructively or you can harness it in a way that yields greater defensiveness, that yields paranoia, that yields uh, kind of a a bunker-like mentality. Um, And what I worry about is I don't think that the United States will be able to compete successfully with China over the long term, A, if it ignores its organic sources of competitive advantages and its unique sources of competitive advantage, and two, or B, if it tries to out-China China. I, I worry when I see in, in some of the discussions around town that every time China trots out a new initiative, what is America's response? What is America's corollary initiative? Um, we are not China. We can't become China. We should not try to become China. I think that we should use our anxiety about China to become a more dynamic version of our best self rather than trying to out-China China. My
1: real concern, I mean, just just playing off of that, is that our response to this threatens really to destroy the very things that are the source of our vibrancy in open society. Absolutely. I mean, especially when we start targeting immigration, as you were, you were saying, you know, blocking visa applications from Chinese STEM students coming here. I mean, Christ, talk about an own goal. I mean, that that is just, uh, just get me started. But, you know, as you were saying, I mean, I think that it's, uh, J- Jeremy, have you read John Bolton's speech on uh, Belton and Road and, and Chinese loans in Africa? Did you
2: see that? Yes, I have. I have some thoughts on that. Um, We published a, well, I wrote a piece uh, yesterday. I mean, I I, I think the best comment was from a Nigerian uh, guy named Onya Nkusi on Twitter. And he said if China did not exist, John Bolton and Trump's Africa policy would not exist. So what John Bolton outlined is not an Africa policy, but the African component of America's China policy. The past is their inspiration. They plan to refight a cold war against Russia and China. Mm -hmm. The other thing he said, uh, which is interesting in terms of the fact that Bolton kind of asked African countries to draw a line in the sand uh, between the US and China, which is never a good idea, um, he said, the U.S. is a free and open society. We all accept, but it is easier for a Nigerian passport holder to get a visa to China than it is to get a U.S. visa. Now, <laughs> if you're into business, this matters. Go to Guangzhou, do your business, make money, then watch CNN and Hollywood movies. Yeah.
0: Wow. Um, wow. It's,
2: it's, I, I, I think, Jeremy, it's a really important point,
0: and I would I would make the—just to, to amplify what you said, I do worry about this this direction in U.S. foreign policy because the the mistake is— Countries do not want to be, whether they are in Africa, whether they're in Asia, they want to maintain maximum freedom of maneuver, diplomatic maneuver and strategic maneuver. They want to, uh, they want to partner with the United States when it's strategically advantageous. They want to partner with China when it's strategically advantageous. And so the more that we pressure partners uh, and allies to choose, the more likely it is that we'll end up isolating ourselves. And so what I would propose, is, rather than a zero-sum conception of competition, is, is perhaps an additive conception of competition. So if China is 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 investing with the Belt and Road, and if the United States believes that it has higher quality investments that it can provide, go to countries and say, look, you're welcome to choose China's investments. We're offering you something else. So I think an additive competition rather than a zero-sum competition positions America much better. Uh, but pressuring countries to choose between the United States or China, I, I don't think will end well for, for Washington.
2: Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, the. Uh, if I may quote uh, my uh, um, co-continental Anya Nkuzi again, another thing he said was uh, also on Twitter, it doesn't matter whether we like China or not. Much of the economic growth witnessed in Africa over the past 20 years has been on the back of Chinese demand for Africa, African commodities. Until we find a substitute for this demand, we have to do business with them. And I think that sort of ties up nicely with what you said. You know, at the moment, there isn't a lot of choice for African countries. And, and
0: I should say, and I should say, I mean, there are some encouraging steps that that we see the United States taking in the, in the geoeconomic space. Uh, and I think in particular... Uh, I'm ex- you know and there are a number of observers who are excited about uh, the new agency uh, that is, has just been uh, stood up by Congress the international De- I think it's the abbreviation is IDFC I'm, I'm I'm forgetting what it what it stands for but it's basically national development and finance I, it's, it's something it's something along those lines and it basically it is um, it's replacing so it's replacing OPIC the overseas private uh, investment corporation and so one it has doubled the annual cap so it has a 60 billion dollar annual cap as opposed to a 30 billion dollar cap uh, that OPEC had and crucially it's allowed to invest in debt as well as equity hmm. and so so that's good uh, yeah. from a from a competitiveness perspective it has bipartisan support um, if we can make debt and equity investments abroad that's good strategically um, Secretary uh, Pompeo uh, when he was uh, when he gave a speech, uh, earlier, I believe it was at the end of June, in which he talks about how he was making a down payment um, on American investment in the uh, American economic investment and engagement in the Indo-Pacific. So those steps are good. Um, but but as as many observers have argued, um, you can't. So those those are small steps and they're good, but they still are are small compared to the, the, the figures that China is pouring in. And even if we are critical of what China is doing and there are many, many legitimate grievances against the Belt and Road, you can't compete with something with nothing. You have to be able to offer a higher quality alternative. And if you go to a country that is receiving perhaps substandard infrastructure and you say, look, they're giving you China's giving you substandard infrastructure but we don't have anything to offer you instead, you're not making a very compelling case for yourself. <laughs> that's right.
1: That's right. Ali, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, let's go on to recommendations. Uh, before we do that, I want to remind our listeners that the Cynical podcast is powered by SupChina. If you enjoy the Seneca podcast, the other shows in the network like the the fantastic Tech Buzz and China Econ Talk should be right up your alley. Uh, and also check out the wide-ranging content on SupChina. The best thing that you can do to support us is, of course, to sign up for Sub China Access. The support that you give us makes it all possible. It's possible for us to keep bringing you the reporting, the conversations, the videos, and, and all of it. Uh, let's let's move on to recommendations. Jeremy, why don't you kick us off, man? What do you have for this this week?
2: Okay. It's a cookbook. Um, you know, I never really cooked in my life, and living in China, there was never a need. Um but moving to the United States and you know, not to New York or L.A. or the Bay Area, there's no decent Chinese food uh, in Tennessee, really. Very little. Uh, so I've had to learn to cook. And um, I- I'm getting to be okay. But I realized that I didn't really sort of th- have a theoretical understanding of what I was doing. Um, and somebody recommended this excellent book called Salt, Acid, Fat, Heat. By Simon Nostrat and I believe there's a Netflix TV series. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that to name say. sounded
1: familiar. I think I saw that flicking through Netflix the other day. Yeah.
2: I haven't seen the, the the TV series, but the book is really excellent. You know, uh. even if you're an experienced cook, because it has recipes, but it's fundamentally uh, a, a sort of. Layperson's guide to the chemistry of cooking hmm. the theory of cooking and you know why uh you know obviously the the title is because she identifies four elements as basically being the secret to everything and if you know how to use salt acid fat and heat in various forms you can cook anything without a recipe uh anyway it's a really fun book if you like cooking
1: unless she leaves sugar and sweet out, out of that list but <laughs> Oh,
2: well. well, yeah, you know me. I, I. Yeah, I, you don't, don't have care a sweet, about sweet. <laughs> Yeah, You really don't have a sweet
1: tooth. I commend you for that. So, Ali, what do you have for us this week?
0: I would recommend the new issue of Foreign Affairs. Hmm. Uh, it has a number of articles. One by Ayan Shutong, uh One by Oriana Schuyler Mastro. Yeah, uh, are yeah, a number of, number of other articles that are looking at. I think, and I like the. I like the title of the the issue. It's. China, I think some China, America, and global order—who will rule the world? Something to that effect. Uh, but there are a number of good articles in there discussing the state of U.S.-China competition. Um, and one, but as I was reading the articles, they do a very good job of serving the U.S.-China competitive landscape. But I think that we need to be thinking more about uh, a sort of a, a possibility that doesn't get as much attention, which is that maybe we won't witness a power transition between the United States and China. Even as America's relative influence continues to decline, China's relative influence continues to rise, for reasons that we were discussing earlier, it's not clear to me that China wants to supplant the United States in its present capacity as the underwriter of, right. of global order. And I so think I agree think on that, yeah. so I think that we need to we need to weigh the possibility of a tense fluid balance between the United States and China rather than a, a power transition. And so but highly recommend the new issue of foreign affairs. Um, oh one last recommendation. Uh, it's on the subject of power transitions. Uh, Corey Shockey's book, mm-hmm. uh, Safe mm-hmm. Passage, is uh, just, a, a, just a superb account of the power transition between the United Kingdom and the United States. Uh, very, It's uh, very, very elegantly written, very thoughtfully uh, uh, constructed, and it offers a number of insights, not only into power transition theory uh, generally, uh, but she has a number of insights that she applies to U.S.-China relations at the end of the book. So I would highly recommend Corey Shockey's book, Safe Passage.
1: Thanks. That's a great recommendation. Sure. So, what I recommend this week is not booking six podcasts all in the same week and running out of recommendations. Uh, uh, No, actually, uh, I want to recommend an article in the Atlantic by Jake Sullivan, uh, who is Joe Biden's national security advisor. Um, It's about American exceptionalism, about making you know it makes the case that American exceptionalism, interpreted correctly, uh, that there's sort of a right kind of exceptionalism, that with that, we really can still lead the world. I mean, as I was arguing earlier, I mean, it. he quotes a line that I just love. It's one of my favorite lines from Obama's speech. This one he made uh, commemorating the 50th anniversary of the march to Montgomery. Uh, we, he said, each successive generation can look upon our imperfections and decide that it is in our power to remake this nation to more closely align with our highest ideals. It's the thing that I love about America. It's just the open-endedness and the self-corrective capabilities of this country. And this is ultimately the the deep reservoir of, of hope that I still have that we can come out of this moment and make ourselves a better country. So uh, that's my recommendation. Ali, once again, thanks so much for joining us on Seneca.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.
1: Jeremy, man, it was great to talk to you as always. Thanks, Thanks, Kaiser. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn and edited by Jason McRonald and by me. Special thanks this week to Jim Millward, who was kind enough to let us convert his dining room into a makeshift studio. Uh, drop us an email at Seneca at subchina.com, Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SupChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Saisen Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, New Voices, China Econ Talk, and Ta for Ta. More great shows coming soon.